You know, I can look at my life, and I have seen many ways where I've seen God be active and move, and I've seen God work. And based on things that I've heard from many of you, I'm confident, and many of you have seen that too. We can look back and you're like, okay, I've seen the hand of God here. And we gather to worship on a weekly basis because we know that God is the author, the creator of life. Sin brought death into this world, but Jesus died for our sin and rose to give us new life forever and really to transform our lives now too. We know these things and celebrate these things. But knowing those things, I have a question for you. Even though you've seen God work in these incredible ways and you know that he gives you life and transforms your life, do you know how God will always work in your life? Like, does God always do in your life what you expect him to do? If you're like me, the answer is no. Like, even though I've seen God work in a variety of ways, when I'm in the middle of a situation, often I'm like, I don't know what God's going to do here or how he's going to work it out, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, we know how he's worked, we've seen him work, and yet often we don't know how to expect him to work. It kind of goes beyond how we think it's going to all play out. We don't have them all figured out. We don't have our head wrapped around them all the way yet. All the way yet. Which sometimes can be part of what's challenging about being a Christian. You know, like when you're in the middle of one of those times, you're looking like, I don't know what God's going to do here. And sometimes we can be full of doubt in those times, questions. Sometimes when God doesn't meet what we're expecting him to do, we can have disappointment and we can get discouraged. Sometimes when that happens, it can feel pretty dark, which is, again, why we have another wonderful, encouraging lesson today, an epiphany lesson, this season of light, how Jesus is brought out into the light of who he is that shines light into our lives. And these lessons have been shining light into our lives by showing us, revealing to us who Jesus is. Or with our lesson today, actually, by revealing to us how Jesus is revealed to us. Our lesson today will actually show us why it's a blessing to not have it all figured out. To not always know what to expect, but to know that Jesus is revealed to us by the Father. The lesson we have is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others... Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by by my Father in heaven. Now with our lesson today, we pick up uh, really shortly after Jesus is really his peak of his ministry as far as popularity goes and, and attention By this point, Jesus had been teaching for quite some time. He has accomplished many incredible miracles, including feeding thousands of people on two separate occasions with hardly any food. You have where he fed the 5,000 plus people, and now most recently he just fed over 4,000 people with hardly any food. Which makes the request of religious leaders that comes right after that event all the more striking. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about miracles and we talked about hardened unbelief. 
here Jesus, for the second time, has fed thousands of people with virtually nothing, and their request is, show us a sign. If feeding thousands of people with hardly any food isn't a sign, what is a sign? Like, what are you looking for? But this is where many of them were. They were just in this kind of hardened unbelief, or at least strong confusion about who Jesus was. And that took place amongst the religious leaders. They weren't getting Jesus' signs, but even his own disciples were really confused about him. We read in that background lesson how Jesus got in a boat with his disciples, and they went across, and and Jesus tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's talking about like their, their ideas, their false teachings. And his disciples, their response is, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Like, this scene has actually become like comical. I'm like envisioning Jesus' face. Like, seriously, you think it's because there's no bread? Like, I just fed thousands of people twice with virtually no, I'm not worried about bread. Are you kidding me? Like, Like, that's why he says, like, how is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And our lesson actually goes on, like, then they understood. And yet, for some reason, at this point, there's so much confusion about who he was and what he came to do. And it's in the midst of this confusion that we have our lesson that shows us how Jesus is revealed by the Father. In our lesson, Jesus, we're told, when he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that title, Son of Man, it's an Old Testament title, actually, um, that Jesus takes and uses. It's his favorite way to refer to himself. It's a really significant term. We're not going to dig too much into that today, but just know Jesus here is talking about himself. So he says, okay, who do the people say that I am? And he gets this interesting response. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's like the the, the people looked at Jesus and they're like, okay, with the things he's doing, what he's teaching us, and what he's accomplishing, they try to figure out who he was or what category they should put him in. And remember, by this point now, we have where John the Baptist, he had died, he had been, been killed. And so some of them apparently looked at Jesus and were like, well, you know, he's calling people to repent of their sins. He's talking about the kingdom of God. That's what John the Baptist did. So some people were thinking, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. They put him in the John the Baptist category. There are other people, though, who looked at Jesus and thought, actually, maybe he's Elijah. And you could kind of see how they would see that Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament that God did some incredible miracles through. And uh, remember that Elijah also is the one who didn't die a regular death, but actually was taken up into heaven by chariots of fire. Chariots of fire is not just a song. It's actually a thing in in Scripture where Elijah's taken up into heaven that way. And so there was this thought Elijah would return. And so many people were looking and like, well, maybe, maybe Jesus is Elijah. So they had an Elijah category. They thought, well, maybe, maybe that's, that's who he is. But then still others looked and said, you know what, he really seems like one of the prophets. And Jeremiah specifically they mentioned. You know, the prophets who called out God's people for sin. Jeremiah was one who lived during the time of the Babylonian captivity, called them out for their sin. He called out the religious leaders. Well, Jesus does a lot of that. But then also Jeremiah had words of hope of the restoration of God's kingdom. Jesus is doing that too. So maybe, maybe he fits 
in this category. Maybe he's actually Jeremiah. They have all these different categories, and various people are fitting them in in, in, in different places. But then our lesson goes on to say that Jesus then turned the question to his disciples. Okay, but then how about you? Who do you say I am? Where do you put me? Well, Peter jumps up, and which makes sense. Peter is that one who was always like, he'd be the first kid in class to raise their hand all the time, and you have to call on somebody else, you know, because he's always speaking up. This is Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, in your worship folder, and I know for some of you, notes are, are helpful, so I've got a little, little uh, note section in there. If you want to, feel free to grab a pencil from the chair in front of you, and you can get your worship folder out. You can fill some notes in the blank if you want. Here's a little, I just want to see if anybody knows. The word Christ, literally. Does anybody know what the word Christ means? Most literally? Messiah. It gets to Messiah, and we'll get that in a moment, but previous to that, most literally, it means anointed one. And so here's what you would do in the Old Testament, especially is if someone is going to be in a special role. So uh, say, for instance, when the prophet goes to, to uh, go to king to David, when David's a boy, and he's going to point out that David's going to become the king, what he does is he anoints him with oil. He would anoint the king to show that they are the cho- chosen one. Or if someone's going to become a priest somewhere, he would anoint the priest so they become the, into that position. So the word literally means anointed, like anointed with oil, which is a way of showing that they are chosen. They are the chosen one. The word Christ is actually, it's the Greek word that means anointed, means chosen. And then Messiah is the Hebrew word that means the same thing. Okay? So here we have the word Christ. So he says, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that God chose to be the rescuer of his people, to set things right for his people and for the world. This is what Peter said. Not only did Peter say this about Jesus being the the, the Christ, he also goes on to say that you are the son of the living God. Now this is a phrase that it might be easy to kind of slide past, but it's really significant because the phrase living God is held up in contrast to something else. In the Old Testament, you often had this contrast between the living God and the gods of the other nations. For example, let's go to Jeremiah, the prophet we were just talking about. Jeremiah says, like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak, they must be carried because they cannot walk. I love that picture. So like a scarecrow, it looks like a person, and even, you know, especially in the fall, like if the sun was hitting a dress right, a scarecrow can look a little creepy especially if it's haunted house season, right? But the truth is, somebody put it there. Someone's going to take it down. It can't say anything. can't see you. It can't do anything. This is what the gods of the nations are like, the other gods. They might look like something, but they actually have no power. He says, do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. They can't do anything to hurt you, but they also can't do anything to help you. They're powerless, So you have those gods, and then in contrast, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. So the fact that the true God is the living God sets him apart from what? From fake gods, 
from lifeless gods. It sets him apart from these fake gods that people do turn to for, and this next blank you could fill in with a variety of things, for help. People turn to these false gods for help. They turn to them for meaning. They turn to them for happiness. If you look in the Old Testament, you have many people who they had all these different gods for like fertility, for crops, for rain, for love, for all these different things, right, that they look to for help in these areas. We maybe don't call them gods today, but people have things that they run to for help in all these various areas. But these are fake gods that can't actually solve the problem. Our God is the living God who stands in contrast to these fake gods who really actually can't help in this life and definitely can't help for eternity. So Peter makes this confession. You are the chosen one, the anointed one of God, the son of the living God, and the one who's actually able to do something, who's actually able to help in this life and for eternity. Now when Peter makes this confession, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, I put that big smiley face up there because that's really what the word blessed is about. Blessed is about, this is good. Be happy. This is a wonderful thing that you made this confession, Simon. Blessed are you because this was not revealed to you by man. Now, interestingly, in the original language, it doesn't say man, it says flesh and blood. Which, I suppose they, they put the word man as a bit of an interpretation. It kind of makes sense, but it loses some of its feel a bit. Like, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It's not revealed to you by, like, the things that you, you see or, or that you can touch or feel. This wasn't revealed to you by what you've experienced in this life. If you think about it, when they were talking about, when Peter, they mentioned the various ways that the people that, that others thought Jesus was, these conclusions were all based on, on what they could see. They were based on flesh and blood. They were based on what the people had experienced about who Jesus might be. Like, they were based on categories that people had come up with, like, they had seen and heard about John the Baptist. So based on this category that they had in their mind of John the Baptist, well, Jesus seemed maybe to fit. And so they put it there. None of them had been around during the days of Elijah, but they sure had been taught about Elijah. And so based on that category that was in their mind, they thought, well, maybe Jesus fit here. And then Jeremiah, same thing. They hadn't been around in the days of Jeremiah, but based on what they knew, what they had been taught, what they had experienced through teaching, it seemed like Jeremiah, well, maybe, maybe Jesus is the fit here. Based on what they had been taught or what they had experienced, they had formed categories and tried to fit Jesus in one of those categories. They based their view of him on flesh and blood. Now, people today do, do the same thing. People today tend to look at Jesus from the perspective of flesh and blood. They have various categories for who he might be, and they put him in those categories. People look and say, okay, this Jesus guy, well, he might just be another one of those stories about some God figure, but not actually real, and they put him here. 
Or maybe they have a category that maybe, you know, he's was a good teacher, but like the Buddha or like others, and you know, but no more than just a teacher. So some people put him in this category. Or other people might look and see that, look at scripture and then look at the Bible and say, well, it's just another old book. You know, it's another book that's some religious writing. It's there. It doesn't really fit into my life today. Or maybe sometimes people will will look at what God says in his word and say, okay, this is just another religion trying to control me and stop me from doing what really makes me happy. And perhaps this is the one that we can maybe connect with a bit more or relate to a bit more. Because even as Christians who know the truth of Jesus, we still have this sinful nature that doesn't like to submit to God's ways. And so we have that part of us too where maybe sometimes we look at what God says in his word and there's a part of us that wants to put that in the category of, I don't want to do that. Does God tell me what, I don't, what, what he doesn't want me to do again? I don't want to do that. You know, or we look at what God says in his word and, and maybe we've been trained by our culture to, to be skeptical about God and so we look at a section of God's word and instead of, of trusting that, that there's a, an answer to it and it's good and God is loving, we're like, eh, it seems like one of those sketchy parts of God's word again. And then we question it and we doubt it. You know, there's, there's a number of categories that the world, and even sometimes it can creep into us, have formed about Jesus. And we will tend to, based on flesh and blood, based on what we've experienced, try to fit Jesus in one of these categories. But Jesus says, this revelation about him is not fitting in one of those categories. Actually, This revelation that Jesus is the chosen one, the anointed one, this is from the Father. The fact that he's the anointed one, this is the true revelation about Jesus. This is not something, this is not an answer, a conclusion that's reached just by by flesh and blood, by your own experience. This is given by the Father. But now, this revelation that was given to Peter... And even though Peter says the right thing, what's interesting is even though Peter had it right that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one, when we read on in our lesson, we see that Peter didn't really get what he said. This is why we read not just the verses that lead up to our sermon lesson, but also what comes afterwards. When we get to what comes afterwards, we're told that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Which, by the way, just put a little note of this, is when you read the Gospels and they're so confused when Jesus dies and then he rises again, he literally told them exactly what was going to happen. Like, it's not a mystery at all. It's like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be killed, third day I'm going to rise. He puts it step by step. And yet, they just didn't get it. And perhaps it's because they didn't want to get it. They're so focused on what they thought it would, would be and how it should go. And we see this in Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. It, it's, like, it's like Jesus said, okay, as the Christ, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to suffer and die and it's like Peter was like, no, get that out. That's not what the Christ does. Jesus is trying to lay it all out there, and Peter is pushing 
Jesus out of the Christ category. It's not what the Christ does. Don't do it. No wonder Jesus says these harsh words to him. Get behind me, Satan. I've never had anybody call me Satan. I hope I never do. Um, that would be a pretty strong rebuke. And to think, so if you read through the Gospels, the only other time we see Jesus say this phrase is actually in the wilderness to Satan himself when he was tempted by him in the wilderness. There he said, like, get away from me, Satan. And then he says the same thing to Peter. That's pretty strong. And he says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Just a little bit earlier, he said, this was revealed to you by the Father. And now here he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man, not of God. Now, if it can be so clear, and Jesus is laying this all out, and Peter can make even the right confession, how can he miss, like, how can he be rejecting Jesus from this? Well, keep in mind that there was just a lot of confusion about the Christ at this time. Uh, this last week, I thought it'd be interesting to look up every time the word Christ is used in the Gospel of Matthew. <coughs> and I went through, and what I found was interesting. So that the first, uh, in the first couple chapters, the word Christ comes up a few times, mostly in like a, like a narrative form where, or editorial form where Matthew, as the Gospel writer, talks about Jesus as the Christ. So as the writer of the book refers to Jesus as the Christ, and then in Matthew chapter 2, we have that the wise men were inquiring where the Christ was to be born. But then after that, every single occurrence of the word Christ is in the context of confusion. With the exception of Peter's statement in our lesson today. So you have Matthew chapter 11. We're told that John the Baptist heard that he was in prison, or excuse me, heard when he was in prison what the Christ was doing, and he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was come to come, or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist was, are you, are you actually the chosen one? Confirm this for me. Confusion. We have our lesson in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There is that clear statement. But then afterwards, we have where Peter questions, or Peter is saying, no, Lord. We have that where we just read. We have in Matthew 16, 20, where Jesus warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Why? Because there's confusion. If you jump ahead to Matthew 22, we're now in Holy Week, and Jesus does a great deal of teaching about the Christ there. All the teaching is Jesus trying to clear up misunderstandings about the Christ. In chapter 23, he says, Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ, clarifying how they are to see themselves in regards to the Christ. In chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus is preparing the people for there's the fact that there's going to be a time where people come and claim to be Christ, don't believe them, so he's preparing them for false Christs. Then in Matthew chapter 26, this is when Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders. The high priest at this point said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So finally they ask him point blank. And what does he say? Yes. And they reject him. So much so that actually the, the, the soldiers mock him and say, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? And then the final time is when Pilate, the Roman official, says, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Every time. It's in the context of confusion. And even you could say our lesson, well, Peter says the right thing. 
is still, he doesn't really get it. There's so much confusion about who the Christ is. And part of why we bring that out is because if there's so much confusion about who the Christ is, when Jesus himself is teaching the people, if there's such an understanding of the Christ based on flesh and blood of, of people's wrong ideas in that time, we should recognize, we need to be honest, that there may be some confusion with us today, too, with who the Christ is and how he works. Even as people who have the proper confession, who know Jesus is the Christ, we can be confused by it and not always really get it. Part of it has to do with the fact that, that we are we are by nature that we are, we are sinful people and we have this, this sinful nature that works against us. And so sometimes we look at what, what Jesus is and we're like, I just don't, I don't understand. I don't get, get it. Or maybe we look at what he says and we're like, I don't want to live that way. You know, kind of like Peter, like, never, Lord. Like, maybe we look at things that scripture calls us to do and ways to live and we're like, I just don't, I don't want that. Or we might look at scripture and say, I don't, I don't like what God's word says there. And so we kind of take Jesus out of the, the chosen one category. Sometimes it's because of just our, our, our sinful nature or we just don't really want to accept it or we want to, want to live life our own way or we want to prove, prove ourselves good enough for God. And so we take Jesus out of the Christ category. But other times, and this is what can make it more complicated at points, is the reason why we have a hard time understanding Jesus is, is like the people in Jesus' day. Perhaps we have been really in, ingrained with false ideas of how God works. You know, I, uh, I hear from people who share their faith story with me about how they grew up in a church that was so heavy on the law that they just have such a hard time embracing the good news that they're forgiven. Or they have a hard time, like, okay, I know, I know you say, it says that I'm forgiven, but I just can't shake this guilt. You know, like, I know, I know you say that God loves me, but I just don't feel like he likes me very much. And sometimes it can be just so ingrained in us. You know, maybe you're at a church that emphasized, the, like, what you got to do so much that it just makes it, even now, it's just hard. Like, you still feel like, I got to prove myself worthy. I got to prove myself, got to prove myself good enough. That's a very real challenge that sometimes we have is so ingrained in us. False ideas about who, who God is and how he works. And sometimes, sometimes it's from something we've experienced in this, this, this world. And maybe it's the people who are supposed to show us what God is like. And they've done such a poor job of representing Jesus to us that we just, we can't accept him as who he says he is and that he's the Christ. It can be really ingrained into us, some of these things that just, it's hard to really believe what scripture actually says. Or maybe, maybe we were brought up in a, in a family or a church tradition that was really restrictive. Maybe, you know, sometimes churches come up with extra rules. Okay, this is how Jesus works. So if he doesn't fit this rule box, that can't be Jesus, because that's not how Jesus works. Or maybe we were taught to underestimate how much Jesus can do. You know, can God really transform me? 
can he really make a difference in this world? And we're just ingrained, and so we're just, we're not willing to receive it. But you know, I'm so, I'm so thankful that even though there was so much confusion about Jesus, and even though Peter himself didn't even get it, God never wavered on how the Christ works. Jesus never, never even just, never hesitated to fulfill his calling as the Christ. He still went all the way to the cross, to this scene that doesn't make any sense from a human perspective. And he went there and the world became dark. Why? Because on the cross, he took all of the darkness. The darkness from our sin and our guilt, but also the darkness from just all the evil powers in this world and the lies in this world. It was all placed on him. So he could pay for all the wrongs we've done, and so he could absorb the darkness. So he could die with him, so he could break its power, so that you and I wouldn't have to live in the dark anymore. Jesus went to the cross, so your sin and mine is paid for, and so that you and I wouldn't have to be stuck in the dark. He went to the dark for us, so that the Holy Spirit could give us life, could give us light, and bring to light who he is by the revelation of the Father. And you and I now, we now have this, this, this opportunity this opportunity today. In your worship folder, I've got this graphic towards the bottom of these, uh, of these arrows where it says flesh and blood in Christ. And here's the thing is, is our natural tendency would be to, to try to figure out who Jesus is based on flesh and blood and try to understand God's ways based on our experience in our categories. I encourage you to, 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 to take your pencil and cross off the arrow that points from flesh and blood to Christ and circle the arrow that goes from Christ to flesh and blood. Instead of trying to understand Christ by our flesh and blood in our categories, let's let Christ help us understand flesh and blood. Let's take whatever it is, our ideas of how the Christ is supposed to work, and let's bring them to the cross and let's give them to Jesus. And let's take whatever things we've experienced, and let's take them to the cross and give them to Jesus. And let's take whatever it is that's been ingrained in us, and let's take them to the cross, and let's give them to Jesus. Let's take whatever category, whatever it is that we have, have, have had in our minds that has shaped our view of Jesus, and let's give it to him. And let's come again and again to his word, and let his word reshape us. Let Jesus shape us. Let him really take away the, the, the baggage the categories, the flesh and blood, and let him really teach us just how loved we are, how right we are with him, of just what he's done for us for eternity and just how he can transform everything now. Let go of trying to have your head around all of it. Let go of your categories. Bring them all to Jesus and embrace being reshaped by the one who was revealed to us by the Father.